0: This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Okay, good afternoon. It's good to see everybody here. Thanks for coming. Uh, My name is Troy Swanson. I'm one of the librarians. (coughs) Today's event is part of our year-long series um, that's part of our one book, one college program. We're looking at the book Garbage Land by Elizabeth Reut. And one of the themes we're pulling out of that is just sustainability in general. So this isn't a panel about garbage or that book, but it's our broader theme of how do we live together in a sustainable uh, fashion. So we've brought together leaders from the south suburbs to talk about some very cool, interesting things happening all around us that you may not know about. Um, I'm just going to do one introduction and I'll let our moderator uh, introduce our panel. Um, I'm really happy to welcome and to have been working with uh, Reggie Greenwood uh, to put this together. Reggie's the Director of Economic Development for the South Suburban Mayors and Managers Association. And uh, just to say a quick thank you to all of our panel members, it's a real honor to have uh, such leaders who are doing such great things and thank you to all of you and here's Reggie.
1: Thank you, good afternoon. I thought I would start by saying a little bit about one particular project that's got, I think, a lot of interest happening recently. Uh, we are trying to look for the opportunity to develop green jobs in the region, what kinds of career opportunities there are that are associated with economic development that's associated with renewable energy. So there's a really interesting company I've run across in Dixmoor. How many of you know where Dixmoor is? Dixmore is not too far away. It's a national railway company that's developed a new uh, energy-efficient diesel locomotive in Dixmore. They have this really neat technology. Instead of having one large diesel engine that mo- is always on, turned on when they're moving or moving cars around, they have three smaller engines hooked up in series. So one engine will come on if they're moving a small car, then the second engine and the third engine based on the requirements of that particular job they're trying to do. So by having this new technology, it allows them to dramatically improve both the energy efficiency and reduce the carbon footprint of that locomotive. So another idea behind green jobs in our region are what are the what's the supply chain that's associated with that uh, diesel engine. And so far we've identified four companies that make parts for this locomotive company in So this firm has just picked up a contract from CSX. Do you guys know CSX is one of those? Well, they have the advertisement. They're the the only train company that has really neat advertisement, CSX. So they have a contract to provide 10 engines made in Dixmore to CSX. And what's also happened recently, Metra is getting ready to purchase 20 or 30 engines for the commuter station, so we're trying to figure out a way to help this company have a contract to provide to Metro for the rapid transit system. There's a problem because the the diesel engines for freight are a little too large to work with the Metro station. So we're trying to find a, a grant from the EDA or the DOE stimulus money to invest in this company in Dixmoor so it can expand to sell to Metro for rapid rail, maybe even high-speed rail and byproducts from local companies. So I think that that tries to uh, illustrate the idea that renewable energy and clean technology as our president has said, is a driver of economic development and a driver of careers that we need to look throughout our economy for opportunities like that. So the panel we've put together today is to kind of think about this from a variety of perspectives. There's no one, this idea of how to, to create a sustainable future involves a wealth of ideas across every discipline that you could possibly be involved in. So the, uh, the career opportunities, the way to contribute and benefit from this creating a sustainable future is not constricted to any specific idea or any specific task. But I think the example of the company in Dixmore shows as well as lost other ideas, but that was one example of how there is a a way that this can power our economic growth. We have quite an interesting panel here today, and I think I'll just introduce one at a time because there's so many of us. And I'm just, for no particular order, I'm going to start from the the, uh, person next to me, Jerry Bennett, many of you probably know as mayor, but he also is the chairman of the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning, which is doing a large planning project called GoTo2040. Is that right? Go to 2040. So we're going to let him talk about his, his work and how that might affect how sustainable future is playing a role in the large planning effort from TMAP. Thank you. Thank you. We'll get our cords
2: coordinated here. Now I'm going to tap him on the shoulder every time I want him to, to change a, uh, a, a uh, part of the, uh, the PowerPoint. Uh, Good afternoon, my name is Jerry Bennett, I'm mayor of the city of Palos Hills, right here home to Marine Valley Community College. I'm in my 28th year as mayor. I'm also president of the Southwest Conference of Mayors that's made up of the 21 communities in the southwest suburban area. Um, I'm also a former chairman of the Metropolitan Mayors Caucus, which is made up of all the mayors in the uh, Northeast Illinois region, about 272 mayors. Uh, Last year I served as president of the Illinois Municipal League, which makes up all the cities and villages in the state of Illinois, and uh, three years ago, by a combined effort of all the mayors in the region, we formed a new agency, and it was blessed by the General Assembly, and in fact it is a a, a statutory uh, uh, authorized uh, agency called the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. This organization was basically formed, we took the old Nipsey Northeast Illinois Planning Commission—anybody ever hear that? It was around for almost 50 years—and the Chicago Transportation Study, which is basically all the transportation funding that came from the federal government to the region, as a separate group. Well, guess what? You know, three years ago, in fact, even before that, we decided that you know we needed to integrate both land planning and transportation because it only makes sense. You know, you want to plan a region in a future. Where you don't have to go very far. If you can create housing and jobs and transportation close to one another, obviously it's going to be good for the environment and good for the region. The board itself uh, was set up with the idea of having five representatives from the city of Chicago, five in suburban Cook County, and the five of uh, the rest of the collar counties. There's six collar. Uh, there's six counties involved in Northeast Illinois, and. Uh, we decided that the leadership on that would represent a 555 so it wouldn't be city fighting suburban or suburban fighting uh, fighting county that we can all work together and we have. In fact this agency already in three years has uh, gotten great national attention as to what our purpose and our vision is uh, for the agency itself. You can see how it's divided into the six counties and representation most of it uh, out of the fifteen board members seven of them are mayors Two of them are county board members and the representatives from the city of Chicago is uh, a deputy chief from the Mayor Daley's office and five uh, basically business people uh, from Chicago. So we've got a great mix of public and private uh, people that are involved in this organization and uh, so far things have been great. If you saw on that that slide uh, the projected population of almost 2.5 million people we think uh, by 2040. That's a huge, huge growth for this metropolitan area. In fact, we are the third largest in the country, and that's why it's important that we plan for the future. And again, I just went through the uh, the board. Uh, we meet uh, once a month, and we have also other various uh, committee structures that are set up. Uh, the board of directors itself, the MPO is basically... Uh, A sideboard, all the federal money that comes in for transportation has to come through our agency, and we're the ones that that work with the various council of governments throughout the uh, metro region. There's nine councils of governments, COGS they call them, and that money, federal money for transportation goes through us and out through the COGS. But you can see the committee structure. It's really a bottom-up structure. If you look at the uh, basic structure and what we're uh, heading into uh, our areas of land use, economic development, uh, environmental issues, housing, human services, and uh, transportation. Again, an integrated organization looking at a vision for the future of this region, a sustainable uh, uh, vision uh, that we believe uh, can take place. And as we move along with uh, the presentation, because I'm told I've got about 10 minutes to do this real quick, Uh, One of the initiatives that we are are, are really charged with, and we hope to release this in the year 2010 next year, and that's basically uh, referred to as a go-to 2040. We want to take a look at this metropolitan area, be able to work with all the cities and villages, the county boards, the people, the non for profits and take a look at where... Our metropolitan uh, region should be in the year 2040. And what we've done is we've outreached. In fact, uh, in, in about a month or this summer, we're going to have various kiosks set up all over the metropolitan area where or anybody can go up to those things at train stations, and we'll give them a series of about 10 questions, how they see the future of their region where they think is uh, where the investment should be in transportation, where they think they should live in housing, where jobs should be created. It's an extensive study that we're doing, and we hope to put together this uh, plan uh, and release it in 2010, uh, or next year, 2010, uh, but a, a 30-year a projection of how we think the metropolitan region should look and how we can uh, can have a sustainable society uh, in uh, the next uh, 30 years. Go ahead change the next one. Demographically, you can take a look at. I mentioned about populations, and you can see, especially in the area of diversity, uh, that we think in the next, uh, you know, by 2040, nearly 60% of the population will, will be an Asian, African American, or Latino, compared to only 40% uh, today. And again, the population, as far as age, you can see the difference also in uh, the the uh, uh, aging of uh, of the area. And what's what's a regional vision all about? It's about The items that we're going to talk about, the rest of this panel is going to talk about sustainable items on the environment, on housing and social systems, uh, the economy and infrastructure. I talked about we're now dealing with areas of transportation and how best to spend and invest those uh, monies and dollars in transportation, whether it's roads, whether it's uh, transit, uh, high-speed rail, um, and also to just kind of take a look at the general quality of life issues that you think you'd like to have. Uh, in the year 2040, or certainly your children by then, and certainly for some of us, our grandchildren, how they're going to live? It's a vision theme, obviously, and we have uh, what we're trying to do again is to reach out not only to uh, to local officials, but to reach out to people who live in the region uh, who right now are experiencing what it means to have to travel uh, where their job is located. Uh, what kind of housing is it going to be affordable housing that they're going to be able to, to uh, and I think today, in today's society we're all looking at affordable housing, as to whether or not we're going to have a sustainable uh, metropolitan region. Go ahead. Again, in the areas of transportation, we're dealing with this right now. Uh, a huge amount of dollars uh, through the uh, recent uh, recovery plan by the president and future dollars that may be invested by the state of Illinois in a capital program, if you heard that, where that money should go. We believe that the, that money should be invested in metropolitan areas. In fact, the metropolitan areas throughout this country generate almost 79% of the gross national product of this country in general. So why not invest, invest in uh, those areas where they're going to generate um, uh, and contribute to the economy? And certainly, in our metropolitan area, the third largest in this, in, in this country, we believe that there should be a closer federal City relationship that we believe that whatever dollars are invested should be done wisely, and that means to take a look at our existing transportation uh, problems that we have now, and where are you going to where are you going to invest that money? You know, we talking about more suburban to suburban rail, uh, light rail. We talk about uh, now they're talking about high speed rail from Chicago uh, throughout the state down to uh, St. Louis, connecting metropolitan areas. Those are the kind of dollars that we're talking about. Too many times in the past. Uh, both the state and federal government in their investments did not look at where that return of that money can go, where the quality of life, where the jobs are going to be created. And we strongly believe that that investment should take place in a metropolitan area and certainly ours in the Chicago metropolitan region. Go ahead. You can see on on, on, a, on a graph, and I, there's, there's a ton of these. Uh, I just pulled up a couple of them on where the jobs are. And if you transpose that on how you can get to those jobs through various transportation means, We're a long way off. We need to, again, put those dollars in investment uh, in areas where people are close to jobs and affordable housing along with those jobs. One of the things that I don't know if one of the panels uh, panels will talk about is freight. The Chicago metropolitan region is the largest freight hub in the country. Six out of the eight major railroads come through the city of Chicago. But you know what? When a train comes from... From Wisconsin and needs to go down south, it may spend two days in the Chicago region trying to get through the maze of tracks and trains. If you drive in the local streets, I'm, I grew up in the southwest side of Chicago, so we all know what train freight, freight train delays have mean sitting at a, sitting at a, a railroad stop uh, for 10, 15, or 20 minutes. We need to invest in a program called Create again, which maybe one of the other panelists will talk about briefly, where. It's a greater, it's a greater uh, investment in the means of how the freight moves in our area, but also when it crosses uh, various streets, how we can, can either invest our money again into overpasses or underpasses. And right now there's projected about a $2 billion investment in a metropolitan area alone to help solve that problem. Again, that's where federal or state dollars can be invested wisely in moving people quickly uh, uh, obviously, with, uh, from a pollution standpoint and environmental standpoint, elim- eliminating cars being stalled and gas being wasted uh, at many many intersections. So, uh, the, cr- the the freight uh, aspect of what we're studying is also very critical. Now obviously, the environmental uh, issues that are involved. You know, we live uh, certainly in Palos Hills. We're right adjacent to the forest preserves. Uh, We have that benefit, but what we want to do when we talk about integrating land planning and transportation is that to reach out to various communities. And one of the panelists uh, that's going to speak later, uh, Mayor McLaughlin, has done a great job, for example, out in New Orleans Park, uh, where you talk about uh, investing in open lands, uh, where you talk about investing in new development that's going to take place, uh, where, again, you have transportation, you have housing, and you create jobs. Now, for those communities... In this big metropolitan area, what we've seen over the last 10 years is a is a huge growth where you have communities spouting you know, 25 or 30 miles outside the metro area. Well, it costs a lot of money to try to bring now new roads and new transportation out there. So not that we're against that type of growth, but we think there should be more smart planning with local communities and how they go about in the future of creating, again, this not necessarily ideal situation of having housing jobs and transportation nearby. For those communities that uh, have already been around for 50 or 75 you know, years, towns like Oak Lawn or Evergreen Park, you can see what they're trying to do around their transportation stations. They're creating some housing. They're creating uh, some uh, mixed use of retail in and around that area. Uh, that's, smart, that's smart infill, as we call it. And you're going to see more and more of that of older communities. Okay. Regional water issue. Um, In fact, Mayor McLaughlin also sits on a uh, committee of of, uh, CMAP where we spent the last uh, two years studying what we're going to do with water, both Lake Michigan water and uh, uh, ground, uh, uh, what they call surface water. And again, on the path that we're at now, in 2056, we're going to use up as much as 64% more of the water that we consume now. We've got to be smarter on how we do that. And that's going to take a cooperative effort among towns and cities and villages about implementing uh, some rules some regulations uh, and some conservation measures. It's a critical study. In fact, the state uh, funded us with almost $300,000 to go about this study to take a look at uh, conservation of water in the future. Uh, Air quality. Obviously, that's a topic you're all aware of. And how are we going to go about, again, planning for the future with a smarter way of using energy resources that we have. Wind power, uh, again, the elimination at some point in time of using any type of fossil fuel uh, for us, whether it's in our car or in our homes. That has been a major investment uh, or, or a part of uh, the, the um, new recovery plan by the President. It's on his, uh, number one on his plate as to us living in a more cleaner environment. And those are the type of issues, again, I'm sure some of the other panelists will talk about. Uh, but it's critical that this country move into that new technology. Again, if you take a look at charts of, about who produces it and where it comes from, it's critical, again, that the investment in the studies and in, in the type of technologies that are developed in the future move us away from fossil fuels. We've got to do that. Otherwise, we aren't going to, we're not going to go anywhere. We're going to continue to have a polluted metropolitan area. It's critical that we move in those new directions. Go ahead. Open space Again, uh, we're part of uh, a region out southwest here that almost you know, 40,000 acres of forest preserve. Uh, but what we're trying to encourage other communities to do, especially those in the, in the new growth areas, is to is to take a look at land conservation. And that involves uh, areas that are in floodplains to maintain those floodplains, uh, to uh, take a look at purchasing, if it hasn't already been done, uh, additional open land space for recreation uh, used by the community. And again, those are, uh, it's another critical area that it's going to take investment dollars and we think, again, it's wise to invest in those kind of things. Economic development. We're all part of a metropolitan area. I, I, I said to you, 79% of the gross national product in this country is generated right here in the metropolitan region. And we need to take a look, again, at how we can improve that and working together with other communities. Again, Orland Park may have a huge shopping center. I don't. We're a residential community. But I know that the people in my community will work out in Orland Park that's how we work together, and also from a transportation standpoint, you know, it's 10 or 15 minutes away. It's not people from my town having to travel all the way downtown without proper transportation, or they hit the highway and they don't have enough train, local trains to, to take them downtown. So, again, the idea of economic development, it's all tied together, and that's why we are very excited about uh, our future in working with one another uh, to create that type of economic development. Again, if you took a center circle, and in what's involved in creating jobs—again, location, uh, the uh, cooperation of state and local government, you know who's your suppliers nearby, uh, the quality of the workforce uh, that's out there. Uh, again, looking at transportation infrastructure, how those uh, businesses or new economic development can be served. The Goal 220 plan. Again, we we have approved back in July uh, the move forward on it. We hope that uh, by uh, the mid. Uh, this year, by September of this year, we're going to have a an idea with your input and the input of a lot of people of how we're going to release this new 20 Go to 2040 vision of our metropolitan area. Request quick, uh, quick uh, the uh, Go to 20. We're, again, we're going to reach out. In fact, we make in contact with Murray Valley about how possibly you can participate in that study. We're trying to coordinate that again with. Uh, if you go to our website, which is cmapillinoisgovernor you you'll find a Especially if you're a student in planning, uh, or if you're just certainly interested in what's going on in our metropolitan region, check out our website. There's all kinds of information uh, that's involved in it. One of the things that we're also working with, if you are also a, a student of planning, this is the 100th, uh, the centennial year of the Burnham uh, uh, Centennial. And if you know about Daniel Burnham, you, you must have over the last couple of years. He's a man that had the, the, the vision and the idea uh, to plan basically our entire metro area almost 100 years ago. Why we have the lakefront today is because of, of somebody like Daniel Burnham. He's the one that laid out uh, the idea and concept of open lands. He's the one that asked that we, we go out and purchase almost 80,000 acres of forest preserve 100 years ago. That's why it's there. We're, we're gonna work with uh, the Burnham celebration this year and uh, tie it into our Go To 2040 uh, vision and uh, hopefully not necessarily release a, a new Burnham plan but come close to it as to how you're going to live in the next uh, 30 to 40 years, I'm also a co-chair of the coordinate one of the coordinating committees of the uh, uh, Chicago 2016 Olympics. We we truly believe it's not on the top of everybody's priority right now, uh, but again, 2016 is is uh, seven eight years ago, and we believe the impact of uh, Chicago uh, acquiring those games is incredible. Almost three billion dollars that will come into this metropolitan area. In investment in economic development and in jobs, it is huge. It also puts Chicago truly on the international uh, map as a, a place for uh, other businesses to, uh, international businesses, to invest uh, in the metropolitan area. Again, we use the word imagine that and we'll be reaching out to you soon on helping us put together the GoTo2040 plan and again, that's our website. Please go to it and I think I went over my time but thank you for giving me this opportunity.
1: I'd be glad to ask any questions again we'll have a a time for questions at the end thank you very much Terry and Chris Slattery why don't you come introduce yourself and I'll get your
3: uh,
1: slideshow set up
3: um I'm Chris Slattery. I'm a Senior Associate Director with the Delta Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that's committed to the intersection of economic development and the environment, improving our environment as we improve our economy. We're based in Chicago. We serve the Great Lakes region. We're working to try to transform the region's uh, economy, um, move it toward the – the transformation of the economy to the new green economy. And um, we actually are working on a piece of the 2040 plan that you just heard about relating to economic development. We specifically are, are working on green economic development strategies, and I think that's why I was asked to be here today. So, Reggie, I don't know how... Should I just...
4: Yeah.
3: Channel? All right. Don't <laughs> so All right, so we just covered this one, so... Uh, So we're looking at the same region that you just saw, the seven-county region. And, oh, I'm sorry, um, we actually are focusing on um, three specific aspects of the green economy. The green economy can be anything you want it to be, really. But um, we've we've decided to focus on areas that we think have particular potential for our region, and those include energy, green buildings, and waste recycling. So um, We also separately are focusing on an area within 200 miles of Chicago um, for the U.S. EPA. EPA and our organization have an interest in trying to find new uses for what are called brownfield sites, sites that were formerly used by industry that, that are no longer um, used for industry. And uh, we're not only doing research there, but we're actually working with some emerging small green businesses to try to find them new, new land. Um, brownfield sites so um, part of the reason that we selected energy as a focus area is because there are some pretty strong incentives that are driving growth in that sector so I wanted to briefly tell you about some of those and if I'm telling you something you don't understand I don't know if we're doing questions or not but um, uh, anyway uh, write them down I guess are we doing questions at the end? at yes, the Right. Okay, sorry. Um, so the tax incentives that are really driving a lot of energy companies are called the production tax credit and the investment tax credit. And in the stimulus package that just was approved in February, there's a new uh, incentive that's very exciting to energy companies, which is a, a cash grant in lieu of a tax credit. So you can actually get money up front, up to 30% of the cost of investment in an energy-producing business. And then municipalities and other tax-exempt entities that can issue tax-exempt bonds can also issue what's called community, uh, no, Clean Renewable Energy Bonds, or CREBs. And those are uh, a good incentive. They're basically interest-free financing for tax-exempt entities to do energy projects. So if this college wanted to put up some windmills and start paying for your electricity, you could, you could issue these bonds, these clean renewable energy bonds, to finance them. So um, tax credits are a little bit of a problem in today's economy because it means that somebody who needs a tax credit, somebody who's actually making money in today's economy, has to, has to want that credit. So um, that's a little bit of a downside to the current economy, but nonetheless, these are, these are good incentives. And then at the state level, there are also some mandates that mainly apply to the utility companies like ComEd and Ameren that also drive demand for green energy. So um, there's a renewable energy portfolio standard that says essentially ComEd, Ameren, you have to buy, this year I think it's 4%, maybe 5% of your energy from renewable energy sources like wind, solar, biomass. So, and that goes up one or 2% every year until it's 25% by the year 2025. But that gives energy developers an incentive to try to sell their power to Comcast, and it gives a market to those to those businesses. So there's also something called an energy efficiency standard which says to the same energy companies, you have to reduce demand for energy. So you have to start some conservation programs, get peop- get your customers to use less energy. So, there's um, also some, some financing and some training programs being funded through the utility companies because of that. And then finally, there are nonprofit groups like the Metropolitan Mayor's Caucus, which, which Mayor Bennett talked about, that are also trying to encourage municipalities um, to be part of a compact to actually um, make commitments to different types of green strategies. So, that's another thing that's driving demand for, for green businesses. So, um, the biggest Opportunity in Illinois right now is in manufacturing, not in putting up wind wind turbines, but in actually manufacturing the parts that go into a wind turbine. So there's a lot of parts in a wind turbine. That's what this diagram is intended to show you. And Illinois has been projected to have some of the highest numbers of job growth of any country, any state in the Midwest, based on its ability to produce these parts, these components, So um, what we're doing with a couple of pilot areas, including Reggie's area, the south suburbs, is we're trying to identify businesses that make or could make these parts. And so we've already kind of run some business data through this little screen and we found out that there's potentially 38 companies in the south suburbs that could make a rotor blade. And there are potentially 27 companies in the south suburbs that could make towers that are in the metal, heavy metal business. So we just listed the names of the largest companies that showed up on our list, and that doesn't mean they actually are or will make those parts. It just means that they're a potential match for that type of component. And so the next step is for people like Reggie and other people who are working with him to go out and actually talk to those companies and figure out what they need to actually move into this business. So that's the kind of methodology we're going through. So I'm just going to quickly show you other parts, <laughs> give you an example of other renewable energy equipment that could be manufactured in our region. And they're all made out of plastic or metals or things that companies in our area already manufacture. So these are some parts for solar components. Next. These are parts for um, geothermal. And geothermal, this is for obviously a very large-scale ge- geothermal. There could be smaller-scale equipment as well. In all of these sectors, there's utility scale equipment and there's what they call small wind or small biomass that that actually would be only for an individual company. So um, biomass is basically turning anything that's made out of any kind of cellulosic material like wood or even waste into energy through combustion. So... um, there are some companies in the Chicago area, that's all right, Reggie, keep going, that um, we've already identified and started to talk to um, that are in this space, that are in this green business energy space, and, and we're talking to them trying to figure out kind of what supports they need. Some of the things that we've learned are that Illinois is um, somewhat behind in terms of the incentives that it offers businesses like these um, in terms of compared to other states in the Midwest. Um We're looking at, uh, we already covered that, Reggie. Um, The green building sector, some of the things that are driving demand for businesses in that sector are uh, things like these recognition systems. A lot of you may have heard of the LEED building system. You can get a platinum, gold, silver, or just be certified. And um, a lot of commercial buildings in particular find this to be beneficial um, because it distinguishes them in the marketplace. In addition to just being good corporate citizens, they're able to attract tenants who might be willing to pay a little bit more to be in a green building. Um, The Chicago Action Plan, which um, was the second thing on the slide, too, is also something that's driving demand for our biggest city in the region because... Uh, The goal is to try to retrofit 50% of existing commercial and industrial buildings, which is a huge number of square feet of space. So um, there are financing implementation plans being put in place right now, but it's just a huge amount of – it's a very ambitious goal, and other cities, I think, are also considering similar kind of climate action-related goals, maybe not – exactly the same as Chicago's, but um, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, for example, has a climate action compact. Um, The Metropolitan Mayors Caucus is, I think, looking at this as well. So um, there are also um, a number of significant um, incentives that are coming down as part of the federal stimulus package. $6.3 million is coming down in grants to local governments, counties, cities, for making their buildings more energy efficient. Another five million is coming down in weatherization grants to help low-income families make their homes more energy efficient. So, I'm sorry, billion. I'm sorry. (laughs) You just lose track after a while, right? (laughs) Uh, Trillion, billion. Uh, Yes, billions. I'm sorry. Keep going. Okay, the last sector that we're really focusing on is the waste sector. Chicago has had a long history of being involved in the waste industry in various aspects, and there are some government policies that are helping boost demand for both collecting and recycling waste and making products out of that recycled waste. So Chicago, for example, has a new ordinance that requires recycling of 50% of construction and demolition waste. And that's something that um, instead of when when older homes and buildings are demolished, instead of sending all that material, which is a huge sector of the waste stream, to landfills, it gets uh, sent to C&D recycling centers. Um, And we're also involved in one example of where waste can go. We're operating a rebuilding exchange where instead of homes being um, demolished, they're actually deconstructed and the building materials are resold. Um, we know that there's a demand from these recycling businesses for new products made out of certain building materials like asphalt. That you know They're looking for, for young people, entrepreneurs, inventors to come up with new businesses that can use waste materials. So um, what we're trying to do is kind of identify those and figure out what resources are needed to help develop those businesses. Green, there's a couple of strategies that kind of cut across all of these growing sectors, these emerging sectors, and one big one is purchasing. You know, nobody uh, can run a business unless people want to buy what the business is selling. So in addition to the policies we've already mentioned, um, ordinary businesses that want to make green products, um, businesses that want to do more environmentally friendly cleaning um, products, um, they can find markets for their business when government and institutions pool their purchasing power through purchasing consortiums, and our organizations involved in trying to establish some purchasing consortiums so that institutions, government, big business can pool their purchasing power to get better prices on green products. So um, hospitals are one of the biggest buyers of products and services in weak market areas. And this is just a map showing where uh, South Suburban Hospital is in Hazelcrest. And it's showing um, kind of the supply chain, what sectors it buys services from. And the service sector, actually, is the one that's got the most potential um, for that purchasing. Yep. Carbon credits is the last thing that I wanted to talk about. Chicago's also... um, very well known for its financial markets um, that have been tied to the agriculture industry historically. And there are now um, tradable credits for preserving land. And what we want to explore and are working on with the Chicago Climate Exchange, um, which is based in Chicago, are new tradable credits for different other types of, of green activities. So if you were to make your building more energy efficient, you would be able to to sell the uh, credits for doing that on a market where someone else who's uh, polluting more than they would like would be able to buy them. So um, there's a whole list of new protocols that could be developed to give businesses credit for good things that they're doing, and that's kind of a strategy that we're looking at for ordinary businesses. So um, that's it.
1: This is David Chandler. David, I'll pull
5: up your uh, slideshow. Hi. uh, My name is Dave Chandler, and I work with an organization called the Center for Neighborhood Technology. Uh, We're a not-for-profit organization. We've been around about 30 years. And what we do is we, among things that we do, we work in fields of energy, um, transportation, Um, and uh, what we call natural resources for improving water quality and we work with projects where there's a a demonstration where we can kind of have a double whammy effect of achieving both community economic development and uh, environmental improvement at the same time and um, I want to talk uh, today especially about a couple of the uh, uh, types of activity that we uh, undertake that are involved in transit-oriented development and what we call cargo-oriented development. Um, How many people are familiar with the term transit-oriented development? Mayor Bennett spoke about that a little bit, but when you have a transit-oriented development uh, around a place where there's access to public transit, Uh, You try to uh, build a compact combination of things. A place where people can live, a place where retail businesses can exist, a place where you can have offices, a place where you can have public amenities. And if you can, this is an example of uh, the plan for uh, the improved transfer development in Tenley Park, for example. And uh, why don't you go back to that just for a sec. And, um, you know, here we have a train station. We have a little park by the train station. We have... Retail stores on the first floor. We have folks living above that in some multi-story buildings. We have a parking uh, garage that's multi-story, so that you can compact your your parking. And when you build in a compact pattern like this, lots of good things uh, happen. Um, you, you you can um, uh, you know these are just some of the, the characters, but. Um, uh, you, you get a revitalization of these commercial districts because your transitory development areas are generally your downtown areas, suburban downtown, village downtown, neighborhood downtowns. So you get those uh, businesses and those folks living in places that you want to want to develop so that you can not spread everything out so far that everything takes a lot of energy to get to. Uh, you create a significant number of jobs uh, within the area. Uh, you create tax base Uh, and you you create a lot of household savings because when people live in a transit-oriented development area, they don't need to drive as far. Families don't need to own as many cars. And uh, overwhelmingly, people save money. If you think about a typical uh, car these days, it costs about $700 a month to own and mature and maintain and gas up. So that's a huge household savings if people can live in a TOD area. So uh, there's several types of TODs that we could think about. One is the kind of sort of all the elements of the TOD that I just described with some density, and you can find that in a suburban town center. Uh, You might find what we call a community area TOD, which isn't as large scale, but you still have the same basic elements of commercial housing, uh, some office, and uh, a more compact development pattern. We also find out in the southwest suburbs residential areas that are served by uh, transit, and uh, here you don't have the, quite the, the, the capture of benefit from transit-oriented development that, that you might have in a more densely developed area, but it can still give people lots of access to their homes, to work and to natural areas that they want to reach. And here in the south suburbs also, uh, we have areas, uh, especially if you go far south, uh, where we just have just a lot of land uh, around uh, transit stations and you have the possibility of being able to assemble hundreds of acres of land for a, a planned unit development where you could sort of build a whole transfer and development at one time. Um, in the south suburbs, we this is this little diagram. If you come closer, it sort of lists all the... Um, but the station areas in the south suburbs. This is off a little study that we just did with the South Suburban mayors and Managers Association. Uh, if you kind of get close to the bottom of this graph, uh, you're the sort of zero—it's kind of like a golf score. Uh, the closer you get to zero, the closer you are to having a town center transitory development. And um, if you had a really uh, strong transitory development, like you have in some of the northern and western suburbs, you'd be kind of along this line. Nobody in the south suburbs really has that level of density uh, and uh, and full development of a transit oriented development today but we're getting there Uh, and um, uh, we have a lot of towns that have the potential for transit oriented development Um, just a very notable example in Worland Park uh, uh, has invested uh, strongly in a a plan for 143rd Street, there will be very strong uh, community area transit oriented development and um, uh, this is just you know, one of the towns that has the potential for uh, a transit-oriented development that we just, uh, just use using an example, is uh, the town of Blue Island, which some of you are familiar with, um, a little to the north and east of here. And uh, among the things that make this uh, a place where we think that there could be a strong opportunity for transit development is we have a traditional Main Street area with about 100 businesses. We have a hospital that employs 1,500 people and draws half a million vi- visits a year. Uh, We have a considerable amount of vacant land um, both along the river and some industrial businesses that we'd like to relocate. These pink areas are parking, which we'd like to consolidate into a parking structure. And uh, why don't you go ahead, Rich. And um, uh, when this this plan uh, is executed, uh, we'll have relatively dense housing right around where the train station is. And... uh, uh, more mixed-use buildings and uh, more fully developed mixed-use buildings along Main Street. We'll move some of the parking off of Main Street uh, into an area that's kind of uh, out of the way so that people who are employees can walk a block or two to their jobs instead of having it right on Main Street. Uh, there's a lot of areas in uh, the south suburbs that have the potential for what we call community area scale of transit development. Most of the, you know, again... For community scale transit-oriented development, zero would be sort of ideal conditions. Most of the towns in the south suburbs have the, have the potential for at least a community area level of transit-oriented development. Um, these are just the, the lines of, uh, of uh, transit that move, move through the south suburbs. We have uh, three of them, actually four of them if you count the, the uh, south shore, in existence now and 33 stations just in the south suburban uh, southeast uh, uh, mayor's and managers association and um, there's another line that's been proposed uh, to come down straight south, the southeast service will will add another nine stations so we'll have strong transit service in the area and this is an important part of the development of the southern part of this metropolitan area is to reach uh, the appropriate scale of transferring development one of the things that we also want to think about at the same time is a phenomenon we call cargo-oriented development. Uh, Mayor Bennett spoke about the freight issues that we have in this region, what a tremendous opportunity we have because we're the continent's uh, leading hub of uh, tra- freight transportation. And one of those opportunities is um, it just, well, think for a minute about the land that that takes up. These little areas in blue that you see all around the um Uh, stations uh, in the area. These are places that we've identified as being uh, vacant land that's underutilized, that uh, has excellent access to freight transportation, and uh, it it exists in in great quantity here. Let's just talk uh, a little bit about why that's important. When we have a cargo-oriented development, there are several characteristics of it. Uh, we have industrial logistics businesses that are close to, again, both train and truck, what we call intermodal freight yards where freight is ch- exchanged between a truck and a train. Uh, we also, they're close to clusters of complementary businesses and they're close to a strong industrial workforce. Those are the characteristics of that, of a, of a COD. When businesses are located in CODs, what that achieves, it's a little bit like the transit-oriented development opportunity we achieve location efficiency because people don't have to move as far. and in this case what doesn't have to move as far when we talk industrially is trucks. and so we might be able to do more things by train and with shorter truck trips. and uh, you know just the, the impact on our environment is, is huge. this is you know like 27 percent of the nitrogen oxide, one of the major air pollutants comes from freight transportation. And about 50% of the uh, air pollution of, of NOX's that comes from mobile sources is from freight. About 33% of the particulate matter uh, that's spilled out into our environment comes from freight transportation. And uh, freight transportation, as you all know, when you drive, uh, is a huge part of our traffic congestion problem. So those are. The, but on the upside, you know, this tremendous opportunity just within our metropolitan area... Is about 117,000 jobs that today are related directly to moving freight and warehousing freight and distributing freight and reorganizing freight, and uh, generating about three billion dollars in payroll. And this is also, at least until the world changed uh, last fall, uh, for many years had been a steady growth industry, and will again when the when the when the economy picks up again. One of the fastest growing um, uh, areas of of work opportunity, including opportunity for folks who don't necessarily have college degrees. Um, And not just the work that is involved directly in the industry, but it's really important to understand that this is an anchor for industry. Businesses, industries like to be located in places that are at the wellhead of uh, goods movement. So within uh, the Chicago area we have about 30-odd what we call uh, transit zones, places within just a few miles of intermodal freight terminals usually. And those businesses located within those zones employ about half a million people within the region, which is a huge part of uh, our regional growth. So we want to capitalize on this, and we have in the area both both places and the farther south suburbs that have been developing rapidly as transit, uh, as uh, cargo and development centers, where we need to think about the wisest and most effective way to minimize truck traffic going to those areas, we also have extensive areas um, that uh, are uh, older uh, industrial areas that are now often now brownfields. Um, just you know, when we did this uh, survey of land use in in our the southern part of the region, again in the south suburban Bears and Managers service area, more than 600 sites uh, of, of of transit of cargo and development sites. Uh, and land that uh, is potentially available for redevelopment. If we think about at least 10 jobs uh, per acre in the the redevelopment of these areas, we're talking about well over 100,000 jobs that could be developed in the south suburbs anchored to these businesses. so, you know, what we're doing now in, in this work, uh, drilling down into the cargo and development fields, is we're meeting with individual towns where these opportunities are clustered, along with Reggie's organization, helping people identify these sites, uh, see what their situations are in terms of what they need for pre-development, and sort of teeing them up for redevelopment, so that as opportunities come down through the stimulus package and other public programs to tee these places up for private investment, we know where they are. We're ready to go with those places. So these are just some of the things that we're doing in order to capitalize on some of the opportunities that Mayor Bennett talked about and uh, you know that CMAP is helping us uh, identify so that we can achieve the, the level of sort of compact, efficient, uh, sustainable development that we want to in this region.
1: Okay? okay. Thank you. So next is Stephanie from Marine Valley Community College. And Stephanie, I'll get your... Sure. point out. Thanks,
6: Richie. I'm Stephanie Purceller. I'm the sustainability coordinator here at Marine Valley Community College, and I just started recently at the beginning of this month. Originally, Andy Dern, vice president of administrative services and um, facilities here at the at the college, was supposed to be on this panel. Something came up he was unable to avoid, so he asked me to fill in. So after listening to a couple of uh, the presentations, I feel like we're in a great position here at Moraine Valley uh, Community College. We're a place of learning. We're an educational institution, right? So we have the ability, the power to kind of drive the knowledge that's going to help support um, these other efforts. So it's a, it's a great opportunity for us. Um I think, you know, we can definitely be that driving factor. Uh, We want to build the business and the civic community uh, awareness, involvement, and support for these kinds of initiatives that are going on. We also want to inspire our students, faculty, and staff to integrate sustainability into their lives as well. And we'll do this by leading. um, You can back it up a minute. (laughs) That's okay. We'll do this by leading by example. But we'll also do this by using our uh, great resource of educators and leaders here at the college. So I wanna give you a brief overview of what Moraine's been doing to be to move sustainability forward here. Um, and I'll do that by covering our institutional efforts, our uh, student development efforts, our operations efforts, our academic efforts, and our community development efforts. Excuse me. <coughs> But before I do that, um, you know, up until a few years ago, sustainability wasn't necessarily overly, uh, overtly embraced here. It was kind of quietly so. We had uh, faculty members who um, were definitely into sustainability. You know, we have the, the Great Prairie out there that they were the driving force behind. And uh, so it was quietly done. But about two years ago is when sustainability really got rolling here, and That's when the college formally acknowledged its need to address sustainability, about 2007. Um, In doing so, they did a lot of research about what other colleges were doing, about what other communities were doing, and they found the lieutenant governor's Sustainability University Compact, which they signed and said, we would achieve 85% of this compact. It's a great goal, and we're doing awesome with it. It's several action items that will help us become more sustainable here. They formed an official green team and that green team has been functioning very well for the last couple of years. And the board of directors committed to LEED certification for our newest building in Tinley Park, the Southwest Education Center. So that is a great initiative. We're very excited about that and it's something we should be proud of. In 2008, sustainability was adopted into the revised strategic plan that was adopted in 2007. So what they did was they added language about sustainability into this strategic uh, plan that, that'll help guide us. It'll help guide all parts of the college moving towards sustainability. And in 2008, 2009, they chose sustainability as the theme. So you're aware of the one book, one college, Garbage Land, um, with things like this centered around that, It's a great initiative. And then in 2009, they opened up our new website. If you're not familiar with it, it's morainevalley.edu slash eco. There, we're going to use that as our hub kind of to help you understand what's going on as far as sustainability is concerned here at the college. We're going to use that as our informational outlet. You can go there. You can look at what we're doing. You can track our progress. You can look at things that um, we said we were doing. You know, we'll we'll update that with, with our progress, basically, to kind of, help get the whole Moraine Valley Community College community involved. And then uh, lastly, the green team and the administration started to realize that this is um, an effort that needs a lot of focus. So uh, they needed somebody to do this as their job versus the volunteers on the green team who also have jobs here that they have to fulfill. So they hired a sustainability coordinator. So I'm the newest initiative institutionally, and I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Um, Within student development, we have student clubs. We have three of them specifically that focus on environmental sustainability or conservation and or conservation initiatives, which is really a good percentage of our student clubs. Um, They've done things like campus cleanups. They've also sold seedlings uh, to help promote trees, because trees are a good thing. Um, We also do campus-wide events for students and faculty and staff uh, to, to help develop sustainability awareness. One of them will be Earth Week next uh, month. And then another one is our participation in Earth Hour this Saturday, actually. Um, operations. Operations is a great way to kind of focus on sustainability because operations includes things like housekeeping, grounds and maintenance. It includes um you know, all lighting and building, uh, heating and cooling and all of those kinds of things. So, within operations, there's been a lot of effort for sustainability that um, should be applauded, definitely. Our lighting systems, a lot of our buildings are fitted with uh, light sensors so that if it's unoccupied, if the lights will go out. Great. brilliant, right? Um, also... Uh, The the light bulbs, the light fixtures are the highest efficiency. If they're not, they haven't burned out yet. We haven't replaced them with the highest efficiency. No sense in replacing something that isn't, you know, finished, isn't expired. We have a sophisticated building control system that helps regulate building temperatures. It helps us um, really have an idea of, of how much energy we're using. We can manage our energy very well doing that. Our housekeeping is outfitted with green cleaning supplies. Good for them. Good for you. Um, Our college bookstore is constantly adding environmentally friendly products, either things made from recycled content or uh, in a green design. Our food purveyor just started using dishes, uh, uh, machine washable dishes and silverware, instead of styrofoam, uh, for dining in. So that's a great way to reduce our waste. And then uh, lastly, this... um, you, you may have noticed all the construction going on on campus. Yeah, that's going to involve, that has already involved kind of disturbing our green space, a lot of our green space, um, and part of that plan is to actually redevelop our green space in a, in a really aesthetically pleasing way. Um, so operations met with faculty member to uh, go over some, identify some native plants that would be really Um, aesthetically pleasing, but also low maintenance for the grounds here. Um, The landscape architect working with our operations team came up with a brilliant design. It's beautiful. I got a peek of it yesterday. Uh, It's really nice. I think you're all gonna be happy to to come back to Moraine and visit it at least. Like I said, it's going to be mostly native plants, low-maintenance plants. Um, During the reconstruction, some trees will have to be removed, so you might see some trees getting cut down. But rest assured, in that plan, there's a three-to-one ratio. So for every tree we take away, there's at least three more going to be planted. So that's a really great initiative. We're going to have a lot of trees here. Academics, uh, integrating sustainability into curriculum is definitely a goal for... um, for are many here, and uh, we actually have one um, curriculum already created that we're really proud of, and that was uh, created by one of our biology professors here, who, and that curriculum will teach other professors here how to integrate sustainability into their program. So uh, into anything that they're teaching. So not just your biology class talking about conservation. It could be the history class or the English class as well. And we've already held one successful teaching session of that curriculum, and it was received really well. We're really happy about that. We also have a blog, Green Today, Green Tomorrow. And this blog kind of uh, is posted to by staff and faculty, and it is – It's about information that uh, maybe is outside of Moraine. And I think its purpose is to generate kind of an academic dialogue about other sustainability issues and initiatives going on in the community around us. And then also academically, our Workforce and Community Development Center has created a lot of curriculum lately, especially around green initiatives and green learning. So um, we can... uh, talk about that in community development. We're reaching out to our community members in business and civic communities uh, with green courses focusing on renewable energies, green building savings, green business savings. Um, We also have another panel tomorrow that uh, we're hosting and it's planning for the future with um, public works directors and uh, supervisors. And then we have the um, second annual green forum coming up in the the later part of April. And that is for building construction kind of uh, learning there to figure out what kind of incentives are going on for for construction and green building. um, And also to talk about what other opportunities are there. And then lastly, something that's uh, one of our newest things that's going on is something called ResNet. This is a really exciting opportunity for Moraine um, because we're going to have a huge impact in the community around us but also throughout communities outside of ours. Resnet is Residential Energy Services Network. What this is is we're going to um, train graders who are certified professionals in energy ratings for homes. So they can come into your home, do an energy audit, and then tell you how to help conserve energy, where are you losing energy, et cetera. So we'll train these raiders, but then we're also gonna train the trainers. So we'll train a group of trainers who can then train raiders and have this kind of whole exponential effect on uh, home residential energy consumption. So it's pretty exciting. So those are some of the accomplishments we've had over the last couple of years as far as pushing sustainability forward. It's uh, been a really exciting time learning about all of those things. This is just a few of them. There are several more. We have many more in the works. Um, I think it's going to be really exciting to figure out how we can build sustainability here, but also partner with some of these people here on the panel and move it forward beyond the Moraine Valley community um, here in the Palos Hills. So thank you very much. Have a great day.
1: So, for our final speaker, we have another really innovative mayor
7: involved in green strategy. So, Mayor McLaughlin, go right ahead. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to thank uh, Maureen Valley College for inviting me here today and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about some things that we're doing in Orland Park because I'm excited about it. Now, if you, if you hung on thinking they saved the most exciting part for last, you're wrong. If you want to leave, I understand. Uh, just real quick, I've been mayor for 16 years and uh, I, I really feel like we've been doing some of these green initiatives and things for, for uh, the better part of 15 or 16 or 18 years in Orland Park. Uh, I, uh, In addition to being mayor of Orland Park, I'm the executive director of the Plumbing Contractors Association of Chicagoland and the Plumbing Council of Chicagoland. Uh, I mention that because uh, obviously water conservation are, uh, is a major issue. Um, we started at the Plumbing Contractors Association a green initiative uh, where we're going to be certifying green plumbers. We're offering green education programs and water conservation uh, uh, tips for homeowners. As a matter of fact, we just signed an advertising uh, contract with CBS. Uh, you may have seen some of the commercials on Channel 2 where we're talking about water conservation and clean water. Uh, I would also like to thank uh, Mayor Bennett. He mentioned earlier the different committees he's been president of or chairman of. I tell you, I've been mayor for 16 years. I know he was, you must have been elected when you were about 10.
5: Yeah. <laughs> but,
7: uh, but he's been not just a, a, the mayor of Palos Hills, but he's been a regional leader for years. All the, all the years I've been out here and involved, he's done a great job working with all the communities trying to get us together on certain issues. So, um, uh, Mayor Bennett did mention that I'm on the regional water supply planning group. It's part of CMAP. The whole concept there is looking uh, 20 and 30 and 40 years from now on what our water supply is going to be and what our water demand is going to be. Very interesting. Uh, we've been meeting once a month for about two years now. Very interesting. Uh, uh, we're going to be coming out with a report shortly that talks about uh, our supply versus our demand over the next 30, 40 years. Uh, so that, that will be rather interesting. Uh, Orland Park, uh, in the past, I'm just going to, you know, I'm worried about time here. I know we're... we're running out of time a little bit, but um, we've, we started many years ago an extensive recycling program. Uh, we started about 12 or 13 years ago our open lands program where we were saving open space so that every inch of Orland Park isn't uh, uh, built on and it adds to the quality of life in Orland. It also helps with other things like storm water management and some of these other issues. Um, we just built a new police station, which at different times we will open it up for uh, tours, but it's a, it won the Gold Leeds Award for uh, uh, construction. It's the only police station in the country that has that uh, designation. We have strong tree mitigation ordinances and uh, uh, conservation easements that we require of developers. Uh, somebody mentioned uh, the uh, pedestrian-oriented, transit-oriented development we're doing at 143rd and LeCrange. That's very exciting. Um, any of these issues I can go in and talk Extensively, and, but I'm trying to go through and tell you a little bit about what some of the things we've done. The other thing we've done is uh, um, conservation pricing with our water, where most people are used to buying. Uh, you know, the more you buy, the better the price you get in Orlando. If you're, you know, water served to homes, the least you use, the better the price you get per gallon. It's it's referred to as conservation pricing. It encourages conservation uh, of water conservation. But there's so many areas that are exciting in this whole field of green and energy and water conservation. Uh, that uh, as far as students that are here today and thinking about the future and jobs that are available there are so many areas, a lot of it was touched on today uh, but there's a couple other things that, uh, that I wanted to get into because when this was put together it was suggested that I talk about the very exciting program of uh, uh, storm water management and how to do that in a green, uh, green way uh, we did, uh, a number of years ago we created a task force, uh retention pond task force that doesn't sound like a very exciting task force or committee either. But I got to tell you, in a community like ours, with the size of Orland Park and all the retention and detention ponds we have, probably the biggest problem we have is the shore erosion, which also blocks pipes and cuts down on stormwater uh, runoff uh, uh, drainage. So there's there's a lot of issues involved, and the different types of treatment for shore to prevent shore erosion on retention ponds and detention ponds was uh, the the uh, uh, duty of that task force. We, uh, we are creating a greenbelt system along all the creeks, Commonwealth right of ways in Orland Park, all the railroad tracks. We're trying to link all the areas that have the potential for runoff uh, along railroad tracks and uh, all the different areas that uh, are open. We're trying to coordinate those into a major uh, uh, greenbelt system. We require uh, retention ponds to have a more gentle slope to provide that. that I mean to prevent that runoff that comes with the steeper slope and the, and the shore erosion that results in that. Um, we are develop- We are requiring developers to provide parkland, which we, which most communities do, but also preserving some natural features and natural areas. Um, we have. Uh, we haven't required it yet, but we are giving incentives for developers that are developing either individual buildings or, or uh, uh, parking areas to use the porous pavers. If you take a ride out to our police station and drive through the parking lot, you will see what at first glance looks like your typical uh, uh, brick pavers that you see in a lot of home driveways. But if you look close enough, they are spaced in a way where they uh, allow water to drain through the brick pavers and there's an 18 inch base. Uh, just to give you an idea what that did at, in the Orland Park Police Station, based on the size of our police station. That will hold. If there was a hundred-year rain, and it seems like we have hundred-year rains about every ten years, doesn't it? But a uh, hundred-year rain, that p- parking lot will hold 48,000 cubic feet of water, or 3.2 million gallons of water, under that uh, under the pavers. So uh, what it does is it prevents a lot of stormwater runoff. It absorbs into the, into the ground uh, water, system, the water tables, and uh, and it, through that system, it actually gets filtered, going through and, and uh, enters the the uh, water table is a lot cleaner than just stormwater runoff. Um, we are uh, enforcing erosion control measures on construction sites to avoid sediments washing into streams and ponds. We are doing. It, we have a lot of construction in Orland Park. Anybody that's out here knows the Orland Park's always had a lot of growth. Uh, construction, uh, recycling and construction sites, these are all issues we're looking into and in, uh, in enforcing. We also restrict lot coverage, which allows more water to absorb into the into the lot. So we have maximums and minimums of uh, how big a building can be on a particular lot. So we are looking at all kinds of ways to uh, to help with stormwater management. That was uh, the topic that uh, I said I would touch on a little bit. Um, but there are so many green construction issues and water conservation energy saving programs that we're getting started in Norland Park and uh, we're about to announce a major green initiative very soon which will involve homeowners uh, and a new development. So uh, we're very excited about what's going on. I think uh, the word sustainability, I think somebody mentioned earlier that uh, you know five years ago, the, the word was hardly used. Today it's, it's kind of a buzzword and it's a good thing because it will, it will make our lives better It will protect our future, but also provide a whole new area of jobs. So I'm very excited to be part of it, excited about what's going on in Orland Park, and be glad to answer some questions. But I do want to say I do have something in common with all of you. After I uh, graduated from high school, I did attend Maureen Valley for two years. (laughs) Is that right? Good. Have a PowerPoint presentation, but I did bring something for everybody. The uh, Plumbing Council I referred to earlier that I worked for, part of our green initiative, green advertising, uh, water conservation issues, uh, we have, we've had these uh, water wheels done if anybody wants one, uh, but we have been using those at programs recently at the Museum of Science and Industry and some other uh, education type programs. So uh, I brought, I don't know if it's enough, but I brought uh, about 70 of them, so hopefully. Anybody that wants, one can come up and get one of these.
1: Well, thank you very much, thank you, Mayor. So when we, you know, at a meeting like this, where we had an opportunity to talk about sustainability, I hope we made the, the, the presentation that there's a, a wide range of ideas from water sustainability to solar panels to locom- you know, highly, highly efficient locomotives. There's a lot of opportunity for all of us to try to think this thing through. How do we actually create a more sustainable future? Because many of us believe we really are under uh, an obligation to try to protect our environment for ourselves and for our, the future of our children. But I'd love to get an opportunity to have a conversation. We have uh, 15 minutes left. In a meeting like this where there is such a separation between us, I know it's awfully hard to get to a dialogue. But I'd like to ask, encourage you to make some ob- observations. You have an opportunity to ask some uh, people who are really involved in this issue, not just ask a question but make a comment. Uh, would anyone like to start? Because I will call on someone first because I know someone. So, so, Ida, I know you. So, make an observation about some, some of the stuff that you've done and maybe ask <laughs> a question. I was very impressed
8: with this meeting. I, 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 I the institute I didn't know they did so much. And I think in partnership with every I do want to ask something. Is it, are there any funds that are available for people who want to invent to have for homeland security. I wonder if there's
2: gonna be any fund development. I'm seeing that they have certain people wanting to open a business, uh, getting into their own businesses, so and really I wonder if there was like fundamental. Well from the from the president's announcement about uh, where he like to see this country go in the future, he talked about investment in that type of. I mean, he was talking more, maybe more in the governmental sector of, of creating institutions that would would be innovative and creative and, and encourage people to develop new ideas and technologies. Whether that's going to be offered individually, I'm not sure, but I, I I know his his national program is to encourage that.
8: Because I'm seeing a lot of companies in the southwest suburbs that are that do machining that are trying to.
3: Yeah, the, the Department of Energy, if you go on the DOE website and you just Google, like, Department of Energy Entrepreneur Resources, they have some great um, places to get started that will tell you about their programs for inventors and entrepreneurs. Sure. So... Um, Yeah, there's a local waste-to-profit network in Chicago, too, that's managed by the um, Chicago Manufacturing Council. So CMC, if you go on their website, too, you can get more information on the local waste-to-profit network. But I think it's primarily among their members, and it's a membership fee type of thing. So I'm not sure if it's available to anybody.
1: But, but But for funds, particularly if you have a specific industry that's been targeted by the stimulus money, there are opportunities. We're trying to figure this out. One being advanced battery manufacturing. We were having a discussion a while ago that there's a local consortium around Argonne seeking $400 million to build an advanced lithium battery company. So we all need to figure this out. What other pots of funds are available? And if any of you find it, please email me because I'm looking for that too. Someone in the very back had a question, observation. Uh, with
8: inflation of the dollar and how real estate is worth real estate going down, I'm wondering how, like, especially
7: Cook County—I'm not sure if it's Cook County or Chicago alone has an or eleven million dollar deficit. Right now, we are moment in time, is like, "Who's spending
1: really going to help us?" It's the economic question. It's create jobs. I, I think I'll have to answer. I think the challenge we have, and, and I see my job as, is to make the case that renewable energy, <laughs> sustainability, and energy renewable energy development is a source of jobs. Does not cost a job. In fact, I think it's a catalyst. That's a great observation, and I think we're being challenged, particularly in some of the area I work with, are some lower income neighborhoods. Is to say those opportunities exist there as well to catalyze new development. But it's you know it's going to be a challenge given the economy we're in. Uh, obviously, our President Obama is faced with this every day. So I mean, I'm sure he gets that same question. Can Do I
7: you know, can I add an example? That goes, a hundred year old example. Uh, at one time in this country, there was a there was a major industry in leather workers and wheel workers and people that made uh, carriages and wagons, and their jobs felt threatened when the automobile was invented. But the amount of jobs created, not only in, in uh, manufacturing automobiles, but in in putting roads all across this country, uh, all the maintenance for automobiles, and it, it, just, it the list goes on and on. So. There's always a threat when there's some new major change in our economy. And if if the green uh, revolution, I like to call it, is to uh, uh, do anything, I I think it will create more jobs and put more people to work and uh, taxes paid. And I I think it's a good thing that, uh, that we all work together.
1: Very good. Yes, sir.
8: How, how been, uh, uh, affect everybody
2: else? again really to to tail in on what the mayor just said I mean the investment in the future the investment in the future if, if, if nothing ever changed in this country right now the stagnation of our economy and the type of jobs that are out there right now and jobs that have been lost over the last 10 to 20 years the whole idea of, of the green revolution is to create a sustainable future with jobs that, that we hope are all going to be come from ideas in this country uh, to create uh, uh, manufacturing jobs, uh, to create uh, energy, energy technology jobs. When you look at about and what it's going to cost, it's really what we're reaching out to the community for you as a homeowner or you as an individual to make an investment yourself, not necessarily the government, to change the way uh, you live in your house, uh how you drive your car in the future. These are really going to be your choices. It's not more government coming out to tax you. It's choices, just like go to 2040. We want people now to tell us how do you think you're going to live in the year 2040? How are you going to go about your life? Where are you going to work? What kind of housing are you going to have? You know, it, it, it appears that it's government. government trying to work right now with the people in this country and nonprofits working with government and people in this country to change the attitude about our future, because if we don't change it, we don't have much of a future. Did I kind of answer your question about investment? Again, this isn't all money that's going to come from the government. It's going to be your investment. The next house you buy, will it be more energy efficient? The next car you purchase, you know, will it be a green auto? Uh, how you go about choosing to to to. Eat lunch here at Marine Valley. You're going to eat on a, on a paper plate or you're going to eat on a regular plate? I, I'm, I'm being simplistic about it, but if you understand, these are these are everybody's choices, yours and mine, not government coming in there and, and throwing money at things. We want you to change
5: and think about how you're going to live in the future. If I could just add to that uh, comment just a little bit, you know, some of the things that uh, these programs that we're talking about do is to, as the mayors have both said, uh, to create new wealth that's taxable so that your tax base goes up. And a good example uh, pointed out that there's about 21,000 acres of vacant industrial land in the southern part of this metropolitan area. Imagine what the tax benefit would be if we can reduce, you know, bring even half of that land back into productive use. And we're talking about the generation of tens and tens of millions of dollars uh, back into the local economy. So if the government money is wisely spent, if the money that the foundations spend on the Delta Institute or CNT is wisely spent, what we'll do is we'll catalyze the redevelopment of of that land and the recreation of these jobs uh, with a big multiplier effect that will come back to create new wealth and, and new taxable wealth.
1: Very good. Another. No, I'm sorry. Can I can I add to that? I,
5: I hate to sound
7: as old as this is going to make me sound, but another hundred year old example. Uh, Are you hundred years old? I, I feel like it sometimes. He's Daniel Burnham? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the uh, the whole concept of the railroads expanding the country uh, 150 years ago, uh, it was predominantly the government that gave the land for the railroads to expand and put bonds up for the construction of railroads. So the government came up with the money for railroads to expand. What they did was they opened up the whole country to development and created millions and millions of jobs and opportunities and new cities all over. So I, th- I think somebody said, it well, if, if the government invests wisely, it ends up creating wealth and, uh, and generating new taxes that help pay for a lot of this. is not the only driver of Right, right.
4: Infrastructure those Right. To kind of like touch on maybe what that gentleman was kind of. But um, I wanted to say that a lot of, uh, many of you have mentioned um, the energy cost in housing, saving energy and whatnot. Um, I think it's really important for people, if they're not aware of it yet, to know that like uh, housing and housing stock generates a significant amount of carbon emissions. And, well, I didn't know this before I learned about the Chicago Climate Action Plan. I thought, you know, it's transportation. Everybody's driving everywhere. That's where the tailpipe emissions are coming out. That's got to be it. But I think it's really important to emphasize that um, saving um, by lead energy building standards and doing these energy audits. Like, um, Stephanie, that you were talking about. These sorts of things, it's important for everyone to think about the difference it makes in your pocketbook as well as for the environment when you uh, invest in insulating your house and invest in, you know, changing your light bulbs so that you're conserving energy or conserving water. I know that like running the water, the tap water for like uh, five minutes is like the same as running a 16 watt light bulb for like several hours. There's amazing things you can learn about saving your energy bill and then also uh, Used on the entire grid, so that's something that I feel uh, is important for the public to become more aware of. It's not enough of that information Me and I became aware of it through only learning about Chicago Climate Action Plan. Just still hasn't had a lot of funding to develop they want to do on it. So that's a lot of you touched
8: on energy costs, um, housing, but a lot of people don't know yet exactly what that means. Very good.
7: Do you, do you know that more than half the garbage produced in this country is produced from new construction. I'd love to see communities start requiring uh, recycling on construction sites.
8: Any other questions, observations? Uh, two questions, uh, predominantly for Mayor McLaughlin and uh, Portland park. Uh, one, I commend you for your efforts on water conservation. There's a movie I saw in this downtown about two months ago called Liquid Assets, and it's a uh, documentary about the water infrastructure in the country and how it's been Started like 100 years ago by Mayor McLaughlin. <laughs> 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 now it's deteriorated and the significant amount of losses in the legal system, and how we have to make a tremendous development in the water infrastructure right. to make it more efficient and bring it the sources of consumption. Uh, that's one observation. The second one was brownfield investments or whatever. And in Orland Park, I think the Andrew Corporation recently pulled a plug. Right. About, uh, what is the city thinking about doing about reusing that facility and its um, infrastructure and capabilities
7: to get into some renewable energy manufacturing? You know what? That, that site, that building, first of all, is, is older than you think, and it was set up for a certain use. So anybody that's going to buy it, well, for the most part, it's residential builders that are looking at that property to knock that down. That's, that's generally what's being looked at. Uh, so based on what Andrew, Andrew wants for the property and what somebody's willing to pay, we have to talk to him about what's allowed. But one thing we have already talked to a couple of developers about that have looked at that site. Uh, have you ever been out there? It, it was a huge facility and a lot of asphalt and a lot of cement, a lot of cement foundations under all those buildings. We've already told them that none of the cement's going to leave the site they have to recycle it. so in other words all the, all the concrete on the site, foundations under buildings roadways sidewalks all has to be um, uh, recycled on the site. So in other words we cut down on the carbon emissions of trucks coming and going with garbage when they can have, when they have it right there it'll be recycled into new parking lots and new concrete so but, but a lot of, a lot of the plans for that building and that property is based on who's going to buy it.
1: Well, very good. Well, I'd like to sort of end this, and we want to thank you very much for everyone for coming. It's an interesting avenue for all of us to think through. Uh, please keep involved with your college and with any of the other panelists to you know continue to refresh our ideas about this. Uh, and thank you so much. And you know,
7: go green, right? If anybody wants one of these water wheels, they're welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.